0: God, we haven't done this in so long and we're so fucking bad at it. We were never good at this. listeners, and welcome to episode 32 of the Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular. Here we are. It's January 2017. Glory be, there's Star Trek on TV, as Star Trek Discovery has premiered after a long wait. Uh, I am here, as always, with my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, there's new Star Trek now.
2: Is that a question?
0: No that that's that's just a statement. we're just revelling for a second. You're just informing me i'm just in, I'm just informing you. did you hear? No, what's going on? Well, I do have a question for you. Have you ever maimed yourself to prove
2: your loyalty, and if so, how? I have never maimed myself to prove my loyalty. I have maimed myself for fun, just accidentally right several times. Did I ever tell you about the time that I accidentally stabbed myself in the back of the heel? (laughs) I wish you would. It's story time on The Spectacular. This is the spoiler-free portion of the podcast where I talk about the time I accidentally stabbed myself in the back of the heel. So, when I was younger, I liked to build plastic model kits. I didn't put a lot of work into them. I didn't, like, paint them and put on all the decals and everything. I just liked to put them together and then play with them like they were toys. And... One of the fun things with playing with these plastic models that I had built is that A. They were made out of really soft plastic and B. They were made out of material that was designed to be assembled. So you could quite easily smash them apart and then put them back together. And so this is one of the things that I liked to do. It's part of the fantasy, right? You have a lot of model spaceships and they get in a space battle. Yes, So anyway, at one point, I'm playing around with them. And I have this little... Basically a steak knife, but it was like a short serrated blade that I was using to, you know, hack them apart when the laser blast hit the wing or whatever. And they make this special glue to put together the models. It's like special adhesive designed to work with the material they make these models out of, and it's called modeling cement. And I noticed on the tube of the model cement, it said, caution flammable. And anyone that's ever worked with one of these models or put together a model, you know the cement is this like really thick, clear goo. It's like crystal Pepsi, the consistency of warm jello. It's, 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 it doesn't look like something that's going to go like whoosh and burst out in flame. And I'm like, what is this stuff like when you burn it? So, I put a little bit on the end of my knife, and I had a match, or a box of matches or something, and I struck a match, and I tried to light the cement on the end of the knife on fire. So let me paint the picture for you. I'm sitting on my bed, and I have my leg crossed in front of me, and I have, like, newspaper spread out so that, you know, I can, like, work with the models, and if it drips some of the glue... Or I can, like, spray paint them, and whatever. And so I have newspapers spread out, and I'm sitting, basically, on my bed with my leg crossed in front of me, playing with this stuff. And so I put a little bit on the end of the knife, and I strike the match, and I try to light it on fire. And it doesn't really light on fire, it just sort of smolders a bit, it smokes a little bit, but it doesn't really do anything. And I'm sort of staring at it, like, oh, that's disappointing. Meanwhile, the match in my hand is burning down, and I'm not paying attention to it because I'm watching this model cement sort of shrivel and smolder. So the match that I'm clutching between my finger and my thumb burns down and starts to burn me, and I go, ah! And I startle, and I drop the match, and it falls right in front of my leg that I have crossed in front of me, on top of the newspaper that I have covering the mattress. And so I go, ah! And I jerk my leg back away from where I've just dropped this match. Except when I went, ah, and dropped the match, I also, ah, dropped the knife that I was holding in my other hand with the little dollop of burning model cement on the end. And the match dropped right in front of my leg, but the knife dropped right behind my leg. So the second time I went, ah, and jerked my leg back away from where I had just dropped the match, I impaled the back of my heel on the end of this knife. That's a heartwarming story. You want to
0: know if I've ever maimed myself out of loyalty? Have you ever maimed yourself out of loyalty? Only emotionally. (laughs) So, we are here to talk about the bomb-bad new Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery. That of the many delays and the many entrances and exits among production staff and, lo, the many struggles that it took to get this show made.
2: Can you really call it a television series when they're only going to air one episode on television? Episodic programs on streaming services are also TV shows. But they're not on TV. They're their web series. You you... (laughs) The Lord, the face you just made when I called it a web series. Oh, that was great. What, like the Battlestar Galactica webisodes? (laughs) Like other famous web series. Like... Homestar Runner? Homestar Runner, and Orange is the New Black, and Lonely Girl 15.
1: (laughs) It was sort of surreal seeing...
2: Because Star Trek, I mean, in the 60s, the original run was on NBC, but in my entire lifetime, even when Star Trek was huge, even when Star Trek was everywhere, Star Trek was never on network television. It was, like, the biggest show in syndication, it was the pilot show of a brand new network they were building, it was never on, like, a real TV station. You know... Never before have I seen anything like Jim Nance coming out of the ad break of the football game saying coming up tonight on CBS it's 60 minutes followed by Star Trek and then an all new episode of Madam Secretary. That was kind of surreal for me. Well, it is kind of surreal the way that the uh, pilot episode fit into the
0: CBS lineup. There was the football game and then 60 minutes and then Star Trek and then NCIS Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> You know,
2: some of these are things I'm used to seeing or hearing about on CBS. So so that was that was kind of surreal for me because, you know, my entire life, Star Trek's been on syndication, it's been on like channel eleven on Saturday afternoon, it's been on the UPN network. That was surreal. Watching a Star Trek ad on like fucking network television. That that was something I've never experienced before.
0: For me obviously like this is the first like new Star Trek show of my adult life which is a little strange like it's it's not just this weird thing that I liked when I was a kid like even more so than the movies cuz Star Trek really lives on TV right I mean a lot of the movies are good and more of the movies are fine But the franchise really lives on TV, and to have a new, like, TV show getting all of the publicity blitz that this thing has gotten
2: feels a little weird. I think Star Trek on TV and Star Trek in the movies are very different things, and one of the things that bothers me is when people slag on the movies judging them by the standards of the TV. So I I think they are two very different flavors of Star Trek the product you get in a two-hour movie versus the product you get on a season of television.
0: Yeah, well, we talked about this a little bit in in a lot of our uh, episodes that we did about the movies in terms of the sort of character time that you get in movies versus long-running TV shows, especially the time that you get for minor characters and, like, a whole ensemble, as opposed to ensemble movies
2: being a little less common, uh, especially in Star Trek. Well... (laughs) I don't want to say anything more during our non-spoiler section. Yeah, but fair. I have a related point to say about that. So, well, without getting into spoilers, let's, like, stay more general. What did you think? Was it any good?
0: We forget to talk about that sometimes, don't we? I think you were telling me the other day we forget that sometimes. Yeah. Did you like it? <laughs> uh, there were definitely some things I liked about it. Some of the characters, I thought, were very good. I liked the protagonist. I like the science officer, Lieutenant Saru. I think he has a lot of potential. I think he's a very, very interesting character.
2: That character, I wasn't crazy about him all the time, but I definitely think he has a lot of really interesting potential. Yeah. Um, some of the dynamics
0: I liked, I think it has a lot of potential, the whole show, in general. What did you think?
2: I I think it's kind of too early to tell. Because of the way they structured it, because of the way the story went, which we'll get into more once we start getting into spoilers, but it was... I think it's kind of too early to judge. It was definitely interesting. They did some interesting things with the character choices, which some of them I wasn't crazy about, but for most of them, again, I think it's kind of... You have to let it play out a little and see what they do with it before you can really judge, you know?
0: There's a lot of heavy lifting that a TV pilot has to do, and historically, Star Trek pilots have had a lot of heavy lifting to do. And sometimes they go about some different ways of doing that. And I think this one was interesting because even more than the other uh, modern era shows, so Next Gen DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, even more so than any of those, the Discovery pilot had a hyper-focus on the protagonist,
2: as very clearly
0: the protagonist of the show.
2: That's true. All of the other pilots are sort of focused on introducing you to the ship and the crew and all of the various crew. I mean, with the possible exception of the original series, but even that pilot introduces you to several characters. But this one, yes, it is sort of set apart that other than, like, Sanu, is that his name? Sanu? Saru. Saru. I'm thinking of Muhammad Sanu, the wide receiver for the Bengals. I I have thought that but not said it yet, so, you know... (laughs) Other than, like, Saru, and, like, a little bit with the captain that Michelle Yeoh plays, other than that, the focus really is on Sonequa Martin-Green's character, and only that character. Really, the pilot is not introducing the ship, it's not introducing the crew, it's introducing her. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. And the good news is that, you know, she can maintain that level of interest that you need for that as an actor and as a character.
2: Yeah, it does a really good job of introducing her, and she carries it well. She's She handles the focus and the brunt of carrying the story, and she does a really good job. I'm not sure how much more we can say without getting into spoilers. It's really hard to talk about a thing without talking about the thing. Well, we can talk about this more when we get into spoilers, but in
0: general terms, I was pretty skeptical when they announced that this was going to be another prequel show, set, like, right before the original series, so kind of mining the gap between Enterprise and the original series in terms of canon. Uh, the canon. Canon. Uh, so I was a little skeptical of that in terms of how it would feel as a TV production and in terms of the room that they would have to work in in terms of canon. Uh, how do you think they dealt with that in general terms so far? Is there anything we talk about that that's not spoilers?
2: Yeah, I think anything I say is going to be at least mild spoilers. Okay, let's let's transition into spoilers then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> S- spoilers, spoiler warning. Everything that this show Okay. I cannot find any indication in this show that they give two shits about trying to fit into canon in any way whatsoever. And frankly, that I'm I'm at a point in my life where I'm comfortable enough that I'm okay with that. You know, there was a point in my life where I obsessed over shit like that, but I've kind of just learned to let that go. But I mean, everything from the design of the uniforms, the design of the ships, you know, the design of the fucking Klingons, there is nothing in this show that tries to maintain consistency with the other shows, other than, like, the name Starfleet. I watched some of the
0: videos that the people at trekmovie.com recorded at the showing that they did for the pilot episode in Hollywood, and one of the producers was talking about the role that uh, Kirsten Beyer plays in the writer's room, uh, where she apparently has often acted as sort of a friendly face of the canon police. You know, kind of gently saying, well, we can't do that because of something Enterprise did, and we can't do that because of this episode of the original series. And I I had that in the back of my head when we were watching the first two episodes, and... Other than the scene where Commander Burnham tells them to target phase cannons, and not phasers, uh, I, I'm not sure how much they really paid attention to kind of the fine grain distinctions there.
2: Well, I guess we'll just jump right into this. So you, you look at the design of the show. The design of this show is the reboot. The design of the ships. The fact that they have a window instead of a view screen. Even the camera angles they do, the weird angles from, like, underneath and stuff. All of those major design elements are straight out of the reboot.
0: Wasn't a reboot. We did an episode about that already. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely a ton of influence from the J.J. Abrams movies, especially that view screen.
2: There's a lot of anachronism. I mean, there's literally a scene where the enemy ship shines a bright light and they can't figure out how to filter it out. And they don't have the option of just turn off the view screen. Because it's not a view screen, it's an actual fucking window.
0: Yeah, they're trying to polarize the windows or whatever.
2: Which is only the case in the J.J. Abrams reboot movies. So, right off the bat, if they're trying to stick to, like, fitting in with Enterprise in the original series, they're not. They're not even trying. And like I said, I'm okay with that. I don't care as long as they, like, do something interesting with it. Oh, good lord, if this had happened when we were teenagers... Oh god, I would have been f- so angry about things. But, like, I've learned to let that go, because it really doesn't matter. But, yeah, I can still acknowledge that, no, they're not trying to fit in with anything. The u- uniform design, the ship design, the technology... Yeah, that's one reason why I was very skeptical about the prequel setting,
0: because, I mean, it's not disqualifying for the show, and not going to be some, you know, shitty... Like I would have been as a teenager about all this stuff, but it's kind of in the back of my head that, you know, the cage is taking place around this time, maybe a few years later. Yeah, give or take. So, elsewhere in the fleet, there are good old Constitution-class starships, and people are wearing their sweater uniforms, and supposedly there's gonna be some, like, transitional movement on that, but... I still wonder why it was worth the trouble to set it in this time. (laughs) Like, in this place in the timeline. You can just as easily, if you really want to do a season arc about the Klingon War, you can just as easily have another Klingon War at any point in the timeline. I'm sure you could have enough.
2: Well, that depends on what story they end up telling, and we really won't be able to know that. You know, again, we won't be able to judge that until we see the series as a whole. Yeah, fair. That's something else I want to get into later, but one of the problems with doing a prequel series and one of the problems people brought up when they did Enterprise, and it's the same problem with this, is that if you're going to do a prequel to the original series, then you have to make it look more primitive than the 1960s vision of the original series. And for Enterprise, they like kind of tried to do some of that, and but didn't really do it very well. And this show, clearly, they're just not even trying. Everything is view screens, everything is touch pads. No, they're not even trying to go with the design aesthetic of the original series in any way whatsoever.
0: Which I mean, you can't really, because it would not really
2: be accepted
0: for like a mainstream drama series.
2: Yeah, th- there are facets of like what we have now that's more advanced than what they showed in the original series. Yeah, like touchscreens. FaceTime (laughs) is more advanced than original series communicators. Touchscreens, flat screen view panels. Yeah, we're already past flip phones. They still used discs in the original series. Data discs that they put into their viewer and shit. CRT monitors on everyone's desk. There's stuff we have now that is far more advanced than the original series. And to try to do more advanced from us you're not going to be able to reconcile the two which is why I'm mostly fine with it you know I don't care about the design aesthetic that much I'm not going to pillory them for that
0: no not not really and i've got to admit i think the uniforms uh looked better like in motion on the screen than they did in still photos the
2: uniforms the uniforms hit one of my pet peeves And it's one of the pet peeves I had with the J.J. Reboot uniforms, too, is that the uniforms are a little too outside the box. What do you mean? Like, they have a pattern that runs down the uniform, and it's made up of, like, a thousand tiny little Starfleet Deltas. What is the possible in-universe rationalization for that? Well, I mean, what's the in-universe
0: rationalization for everyone changing their uniforms every five years? It's just you know, <laughs> s- someone, you know, you know what? This is this is a
2: post-scarcity utopia, right? Not yet. Not if they're sticking with the pre-toast time frame. They didn't have replicators yet
0: yeah that that's one point that the that a lot of the uh producers and such have been talking about that it's just so inconvenient to have replicators. Ron Moore got in on that too, like fifteen twenty years after he was writing Star Trek still talking about it it was so inconvenient to have replicators um where was I <laughs> <laughs> i mean th- this is an advanced utopia. Whether or not it's technically post-scarcity in every respect, whatever. So, you may have more people who can devote themselves
2: to the designing arts. Yeah, but this is a uniform! I mean, they don't make army uniforms with a pattern of, like, 10,000 tiny little flags covering the whole thing.
0: I'm pretty sure that's a kind of camo you can get, but I'm not sure the actual military uses it. (laughs) I don't know much about real-world military uniforms. I saw someone say once while discussing them in terms of Star Trek uniforms that there are heads of military departments who do kind of make small tweaks to the uniforms when they come into power. And then the next person might make another small tweak, but not wholesale changes like we see over and over again in Star Trek, of course, because, you know, costume
2: designers going to design costumes. (laughs) Uh, That just bugs me when there's that sort of design feature that is so obviously made by a costume designer trying to make something star trekky rather than somebody designing a uniform for starfleet you know i suppose
0: let's turn back to the story a little bit now now that we're well into spoilers and the whole uniform discussion has put off the uninitiated completely speaking of things being star trekky or not what did you think of the, uh, the story in, in these two episodes in terms of that?
2: I thought the story was fine, except that it was like a two-hour prologue for the rest of the series. Mm. I mean, even more so than other pilots. It's as if the DS9 two-hour pilot was about the Battle of Wolf 359, and you didn't even see Deep Space Nine until episode three. That's sort of what they've done here, where they've set up the situation and like we we don't even see the starship discovery in these two episodes. You know, we spend two hours being introduced to Michelle Yeoh's Captain Giorgio, and then she dies at the end. Mm. <laughs> we we spend two hours being introduced to the, the crew and uh Michael Burnham's situation on the starship Shenzhou. And then they abandon ship at the end because it's been massacred in this battle. There's so little coming out of this episode that's going to be relevant to the rest of the series other than as backstory. And that's what this was. It was two hours of backstory. Most pilots are setting up what's going to happen. This was entirely backstory. Backstory.
0: Yeah, it's it's all informing characters. You know, whichever of the Shenzhou officers are coming back once we do actually get to the Discovery uh, in the next episode, I think, and where Commander Burnham is, like, emotionally. And existentially, because she's got to get out of prison now. One of the things, in terms of being Star Trek-y as a, as a story... One of the things that I kind of like in my Star Trek is when the characters express some uneasiness at having so much action and so many space battles, the whole we're supposed to be explorers thing. I think is something that Star Trek's absolutely come back to again and again, but that's because it keeps having to, because people keep writing action episodes.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well... I, I did like, I forget if it was the helmsman or the ops officer, who's just, after the battle, he just sort of has his head in his hands. Like, we're supposed to be explorers, why are we fighting? He's yeah. like, he, he he is, it's like his world has just been shattered. Especially if, as they say, they haven't
0: had pretty much any run-ins with the Klingons since Enterprise you know it if if life in the federation has gone on peacefully as life in the federation tends to do then yeah when you, when you're thrown up against a race like the klingons especially as they're being portrayed now it is such a culture shock
2: for a lot of these characters. Well, that's the main conflict that Michael Burnham has throughout the first episode, is that she's trying to tell these utopian, pie-in-the-sky Starfleet people that, no, these are not utopian, pie-in-the-sky enemies we've run into. And all the Starfleet people are like, why do you have to call them enemies? Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of squishy dialogue
0: about that and the admiral's message to the klingons late in the second episode when the useless admiral finally shows up
2: was just so uncomfortable (laughs) they did a really good job of portraying there's always an angle you can take where starfleet's sort of desire for peace and desire for coexistence can come across as sort of arrogant and presumptuous and holier than thou yeah the whole cultural imperialism side of it and they did a really good job of portraying that especially with the admiral but even with captain giorgio even her message, when she literally ends the thing by saying "We come in peace," you just want to put, you just want to slap your forehead and go, "Oh God, can you hear yourself?"
0: Especially since the enemy of the episode is a man who wants to make Kronos great again.
2: Yeah, he wants to keep the Klingons Klingon. Yeah, Kronos for Klingons, which is another character, the Klingon leader Takuvma. Ooh, I saw a ton of like promo material about him and character bios about him and he's also dead at the end of episode two. I really wonder since they invested so much in
0: Takuvma and Captain Giorgio and the Shenzu just as a setting, I really wonder if there might not be like significant additional flashbacks.
2: Well, that that gets into another possibility for when we get to the end of the story. Make a note of that when we get to the end of the episode and talk about like, what's going to be in the rest of the season, because I have a wild-eyed theory about that. So what did you think of the mutiny? Because I've seen a lot of people who cite Gene Roddenberry's old Next Generation era edict that we don't have conflict between Starfleet officers, or we don't have conflict between officers on our ship. Because these are the elite of the elite, and they wouldn't let people that have that kind of conflict onto this ship. (sighs) Which a lot of the TNG and DS9 writers... The TNG writers considered that to be basically handcuffs on them trying to come up with a story and the DS9 writers tried to get around it by introducing a whole slew of non-Starfleet characters that people could have conflicts with, and the Voyager writers got around it by introducing a whole slew of Maquis characters that the Starfleeters could have conflicts with, and the Enterprise writers brought in the Vulcans that the Starfleeters could have conflicts with. So what did you think about starting right off the bat with a mutiny? That was definitely
0: a shock. Um I'm kind of of two minds about the old Roddenberry rules because I mean there were wholesale inventions for next generation. Oh yeah, it did not absolutely did not exist in the in the original series. And they were pretty spotty even in next gen. At times, yeah. Um lately I've been reading the 50-year voyage books, the sort of oral history of Star Trek. And I just finished the original series and movie-era book and started the next-gen and onward book. And there is a lot of myth-busting about Gene Roddenberry in those books. There are a lot of people talking about the kind of, I don't want to say duplicitousness... But the ways in which he could be a Hollywood producer first and a utopian second.
2: Well, he didn't even Uh, really become a utopian until the 70s.
0: Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. A lot of that came about when he kind of believed his own publicity during the convention era in the 70s. Yeah. And some of it came to fruition on the first movie, and then they kicked him off the movies, and then a lot of that came to fruition on Next Generation, including the rules or handcuffs or uh, or whatever people referred to them as about conflict between the characters, and I see where he's coming from, even then, in terms of utopian storytelling. And in terms of um, one blogger that I read sometimes calls it a utopian conflict resolution, where things can be resolved in ways other than the ways they're always resolved on every TV show. And I can see the point of not having to have Captain Kirk get in a fist fight at the end of every episode. You know? At the same time, (laughs) it does strain credulity a little bit. (laughs) so i was expecting them to go with something a little more like the ds9 model not exactly in that there are going to be a lot of non-starfleet non-federation characters but more in that a lot of the characters are going to be fleshed out characters with their own perspectives and sometimes those perspectives come into conflict uh the mutiny itself like i said was a shock Um, I can definitely see that turning some people off of the character, because it is so ingrained in Star Trek, the idea of the chain of command, it's one of the more military things that they integrate into the show, And and they have the scene that they've had in pretty much every Star Trek show at some point, where the first officer is making their case, making their case,
2: and then the captain says, you know, out here, come with me, how dare you question me in front of the crew? It's not even just the chain of command. I mean, the chain of command does get a lot of respect in Star Trek, but even over and above just the chain of command is the demigod mythical position of captain of the starship. Yes. You you don't go against the captain. Yeah, the captain
0: makes the decision,
2: and you can argue, but that's the captain's decision. I mean, even above and apart cause there's lots of Star Trek that's about going against the chain of command. Star Trek 3 is about going against the chain of command. Well. Star Trek 4 is about going against the chain of command. Picard goes against the chain of command. Data goes against the chain of command sometimes. There's lots of Star Trek that's about going against the chain of command. It hardly even. But you never go against the captain of the ship. Yeah, does it even
0: count as going against the chain of command when it's an admiral? <laughs> but, yeah, definitely, definitely, and uh, even more so, given the relationship that these episodes spend so long hammering home uh between Giorgio and burnham yeah the the friendship, the mentor relationship that so many of the captains in these shows have with members of their crew, which they showed a little bit in uh the scenes with uh the two of them and Lieutenant Saru, where they're all kind of sniping at each other in a friendly way like you do on a Star Trek show. So, I think the mutiny was meant to be a shock, obviously, and was meant to show the depth of Burnham's feeling that when she is absolutely sure of something reinforced by her Vulcan education, so when she is absolutely emotionally committed to something And when she is absolutely logically certain about
2: something, that idea cannot just be ordered away. I think the way they set up the situation is really interesting. Because the rest of the episode, or the rest of the two episodes, sort of shows that she was right. That just sitting there and sending out friendship greetings and waiting for the rest of the Klingon fleet to arrive was absolutely the wrong thing to do. But at the same time, she is clearly overly emotionally involved in the situation, and you cannot trust her judgment. She is completely, to quote, reboot Spock, she has been emotionally compromised by this situation involving the Klingons, and her judgment cannot be trusted, as shown by the fact that she betrays her friend and mentor and captain. But she's shown to be mostly correct at the end. She does have the cultural
0: understanding to know that when you're dealing with the Klingons, aggressiveness is usually a plus. And maybe that's one undercurrent of it, too. I mean, they do kind of hammer home that they have not had any encounters with the Klingons in a long time, and so people forget.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which, which again... I mean, the only people who are alive who would be old enough to remember dealing with the Klingons would be the older Vulcans. And apparently the Vulcans are the only ones that actually do know how to deal with them.
0: Yeah, that I found interesting because... If, if the Vulcans are around, and the Vulcans know how to deal with it because they all already did it, and Starfleet and the Federation had some conflicts with them, people forget over over a certain amount of time, but you'd think that it would be part of people's education and part of people's like background
2: knowledge? Well, I think the strong implication is that whatever education and background knowledge they had has been overridden by their pie-in-the-sky utopianism. Can't we all just get along? Yeah,
0: and how does that interface with the uh, contemporary metaphor (laughs) of being too soft in the face of people who, again, want to make Kronos great again? Maybe being
2: uh, not
0: quite aggressive enough (laughs) to people who only understand aggression?
2: I found it really interesting the way they redesigned the Klingons. Yes. It, it, It... This is my impression of it, and I don't know if you shared my impression, but my impression of the makeup redesign is basically that they've chosen to address the controversy of whether or not the Klingon makeup constitutes blackface by just literally making them black and gray rather than any shade of human skin. Well, they did have various shades, and... Yes, but no shades of brown. Were there none? Everyone I remember seeing was some shade of grey or or black. Or the one albino.
0: Yeah, they had the albino and Tecumvo was just straight up, like, completely black. And yeah, they did have they did have a lot of different shades. And they introduced colorism among Klingons, which
2: was interesting. Well, they had the albino Klingon on um DS9. The one that Kang, Korin, Koloth, and Dax went after. Right. Klingons have never struck me as the most, you know, open, accepting people. Yeah, see, you could really go either way
0: on that, depending on whether you want to portray the Klingons as allies or as enemies.
3: You know, yeah, if you're they're...
0: portraying them as enemies, then any difference makes you less of a warrior and you are rejected from my house. And if you want to portray the Klingons as allies, uh such as in DS9, you have scenes like uh the scene where Martok and Worf talked about people fighting mental illness as a great warrior's struggle. You know, where that kind of equalizes things where whatever struggle that you have, as long as you confront it, honorably as a warrior then you are honorable to them you know and that's how you get kind of racially inclusive klingons versus uh racially or culturally exclusive klingons
2: well again it's like with the starfleet pie in the sky utopianism it's how what angle do you put on it what english do you put on the ball how do you shade the portrayal Do they ruthlessly persecute any perceived weakness or difference? Or perceive any difference as a weakness? Or will they judge any show of strength and honor and say, Okay, I don't care what you are, you've shown strength and honor. Again, it's just how you you spin it, what kind of angle you put on the portrayal. Yeah,
0: and Tukumva as a character obviously is way on one end of that spectrum. (laughs) as as very much like a Klingon fundamentalist, or a well, Klingon he, traditionalist.
2: Well, he sort of shows both sides, because at first he's like, you know, you don't come from a great house, you don't have a great family name, you are not worthy to be in my presence, and then the guy puts his hand in the fire, and after that, Tecumvra's like, oh, well, if you're willing to withstand pain for our cause, then you've proven yourself, and now I don't care that you don't have a great house name or whatever. Yeah, maybe I'm an old
0: fuddy-duddy, but I kind of preferred it when the Klingons cut their palms, rather than just burning themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they they didn't have people sticking their hands in open flame on the road to Kalhaia.
1: consideration
3: paid for by the following.
1: Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of the Kevin Kelly show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. PlaySimination's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, And we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling.
3: In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacey and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, The Feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast our Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the Hard Traveling Fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find
1: all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available on Placemination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using placehumination.com backslash Amazon when shopping online, and download our free PTB vintage vault refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. Placemination.com, the only place to be. Your pop culture world.
0: Let's get a little more into the Klingons. Again, in terms of the design aesthetic of this show, that's something that's
2: been somewhat controversial. What do you think about the Klingons? What do you mean by design aesthetic? You mean their outfits, or the makeup, or (sighs) the new sort of portrayal of the intensely spiritual sect of Klingons that we're introduced to? Well, the spiritualism, I thought, was, was pretty
0: interesting. The new burial ritual, I thought, was very interesting and very in keeping with what these Klingons are. The sort of ship encased in sarcophagi to let Stovacor know that all these warriors are coming, uh, I I thought, was a really neat visual. The makeup and the costumes are going to
2: take some getting used to, I think. Well, just because they didn't change the Klingon makeup or costumes between 1979 and 2005. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and and I know, in terms of
0: pedantic canon conflicts, I mean, people talk about that being just different houses. Because it's a big empire, and even on our one planet we have all the ethnic diversity that we have, so why can't Klingons? Mm. Which is fine and all, but... Even in that case, I would have expected to see, like, one old-style Klingon when they had those representatives from every house showing up. Maybe that would have stood out too much.
2: Again, this is something I obsessed over when I was younger and now just mostly don't care about. I mean, okay, so the Klingons look different. Basically. Captain Kirk in Where No Man Has Gone Before looks different than he does in Star Trek Into Darkness. I've reconciled myself to these things. Okay. (laughs) Um, the best explanation of the Klingons was in Trials and Tribulations. They are Klingons, and we do not discuss it with outsiders. That was absolutely the the best explanation of,
0: of any... That was
2: absolutely the way to handle that controversy. Yes. Answered and done with. Answered and done with in the exact way that those characters would deal with it. My main problem with the Klingons is that we have, like, a 5 or 10 or 12 minute scene of the Klingons, and they're all speaking Klingon. Throughout the entirety of, like, a 10 or 12 or 15 minute scene. You don't need to do that. We understand that Klingons, amongst other Klingons, are going to speak Klingon. You can just show them speaking English, you know? Like in a James Bond movie where the enemies all speak in English, even though they're all Russian. It just... I think that's a bad choice to have a long, extended scene of subtitled Klingon. Rather than just use the, you know, drama convention of showing it in English because the audience is watching it in English. I think that's unnecessarily limiting the actors, too. And also, they were speaking so slowly for the whole time. Every time they were speaking Klingon, they said everything really, really slowly... And deliberately, and it just slowed everything down. And it harmed the actors trying to, you know, emote.
0: Yeah, because they were concentrating more on phonetically sounding out a language they didn't know. Than they might have been sometimes emoting as their characters exactly I don't think that's just I like it better the way it was when I was thirteen i i I think that's that's sort of i I understand the artistic choice to have them speak in their native language, and there are shows that do that you know with spanish speaking people and and such but Number 1 that's an actual language that actual people speak and actual actors already know and are native in and can fully emote in which is not going to be true for Klingon for pretty much any actor. I mean there are people who are fluent in Klingon but that's that can't really be the first line in your casting call. <laughs> and so they they have, you know, phonetic guides and and people on the set to help with the Klingon and everything. I'm certain, but it has to serve as, as, as a bit of a distraction, and part of that might also be the, the heightened level of prosthetics. You know, the, the Klingons are no longer just a couple of prosthetic pieces, it's a full mask now. Mm. So that might be part of it, the, the full mask, the fake teeth, and constantly having to sound out Klingon. I understand it as an artistic choice, but
2: I think I would have preferred it in English. <laughs> I mean, that's just sort of a convention. I mean, having actors or portraying characters who speak a foreign language is not a new thing. It's not a uniquely science fiction thing. You portray Mm. characters in French or characters that speak Spanish or characters that speak German. And you show them speaking the language the audience understands so that the scene works for the audience. It's... just sort of, you know, the convention of how these scenes are portrayed, and so when they did the long, extended scenes, like, if it was, like, a couple of lines, it would have been one thing, but the ten-minute speeches in really, really slow, deliberate on it was just... I thought that was a bad choice.
0: Imagine if they'd made everyone learn Russian for Hunt for Red October.
2: <sighs> Capitán Bayou! you. <laughs> Capitan Bayou!
0: Captain scared the Americans out of the water. (laughs) Uh, And and as Tukumva died at the end of episode two, he looked into the distance and said,
2: I would like to have seen (laughs) Katha. They let you travel from Andor to Vulcan to Proxima Centauri. No papers. Uh, While we're on the Klingons,
0: what did you think of the apparent implication that
2: Tecumva invented cloaking? That's another, you know, one of those, like, canon consistency things that I'm not going to get hung up on. I mean, the strong implication of Balance of Terror is that that's the first cloaking screen anyone's ever heard of. But it's not that much of a stretch to imagine the history of cloaking technology as, you know, having ebbs and flows, as we know it did after Balance of Terror. We know that after Balance of Terror, the Federation eventually learned how to detect the cloak, and then they made a better cloak, and then they made better sensors, and then they made a better cloak, and then they made better sensors, and then... We know it went back and forth like that. We we know that in Enterprise Incident, they stole a cloak so they could learn how to detect it, but later in the movie era, they had cloaks that they couldn't detect anymore. And we know it went back and forth like that. So it's not a horrible stretch to just extend that to earlier in the timeline as well. That, like... Look at these Klingons. They have some sort of cloaking technology, and then at some point the Federation scientists learn how to penetrate the cloaking technology. And then along comes Balance of Terror, and here's a new cloaking technology that we can't penetrate. So now we have to learn how to penetrate it. It's again, it's a minor thing that doesn't fit with pre- the previously established canon, but I don't care. I'm just gonna sort of roll with it. Sure. I mean, not not even on a on a canon level. I
0: mean, they had cloaking in Enterprise too, but it just seems dramatically. Convenient.
2: Anytime you bring up a cloak, it's convenient. I mean, what is the cloak but, you know, a convenient way to give the enemy somewhere to hide behind in the middle of empty space? Well, I mean, that whole cloak
0: versus sensors arm race is pretty clearly, like, you know, the allegory for stealth technology, too. So it's it's not just, like, a dramatic convenience, but another military thing.
2: Because they're the military, right? Well, it started off with, you know, we want to make a submarine episode where you're trying to find the enemy, but you're having trouble locating them. How do we do that in outer space? Uh, Maybe they can cloak themselves, you know? it's, It's the way these things come about. I think it's more interesting that apparently it's standard operating procedure for the Klingons to have one warrior just sort of standing on the hull of their ship in case anybody flies by in an EVA suit.
0: Well... I, I I don't
2: I don't think he was just
0: standing out there. I think he like went out there when Burnham like landed on the thing and triggered it. But also they were actively trying to trap them. I suppose. I feel like there's probably more character stuff we should talk about, but you know, one of the things that we mentioned is that because these two episodes are all prologue And also because Episode 2 was so heavily focused on the one space battle that, you know, we don't know a lot of the character dynamics quite yet. Because there are a lot of characters that we haven't gotten to yet in the whole USS Discovery setting.
2: Well, I think Saru is still going to be around. Somehow he winds up on the Discovery as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that any other characters are still going to be there. I don't know that they won't, but I don't know of any other characters that are still going to be there the rest of the show. I don't... I don't know. Because, I mean, they could provide a rich and detailed backstory to pretty
0: much anyone. There was the, uh, Lobot-looking cyborg guy on the Shenzhou Bridge. There was, uh, Lieutenant Daft Punk. (laughs) So, before we wrap up and talk about the rest of the season, let's talk about the big space battle in episode two. It was a little bit of culture shock, I'm not sure if that's the right term uh, for me, uh, seeing a Star Trek space battle, you know, of two fleets in the way that you would have it in a modern mainstream TV series, you know? Because in Star Trek, it's always been... You know, limited by budget and effects limitations and and all of that. Even in the later seasons of DS9 when they did large battles, there were still limitations to it. And this one felt a lot more modern, absolutely, because of a lot of the sort of cinematography of it, the direction of it. Uh, some of the influence of the J.J. movies again in yeah, that terms whole of thing. how you visualize the starships moving around.
2: Everything of that was all from the J.J. movies, from the way the phasers worked, the phaser bolts instead of the solid beams, yeah. to the effect of coming out of warp or going back into warp, just the way they showed that was straight out of the movies. That whole that whole thing was straight out of the movies. I, I almost, I want to question, did it feel more modern Because there's a way a space battle feels modern, or did it feel more modern just because it was similar to the movies that have come out in the last few years, rather than the TV shows from 25 years ago? Even the uh, J.J. era movies never had
0: a, like, fleet versus fleet battle. No. You know, that's a very
2: different thing that we haven't had, I think, really since DS9. No, they uh, never did fleet, but but all of those effects, the, the weapon, the way oh the yeah. weapons looked, and the way the weapons worked, and that like shotgun blast effect of dropping out a warp, that's all straight out of the movies. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, I think about some of this stuff and I feel
0: like an old fuddy-duddy. You know, looking at the design of the starships and thinking, oh, I don't really like any of those. And then thinking, <laughs> I haven't really loved a new starship design since... 1994, I think? Uh, since probably the ships in
2: the next-gen finale. I mean, the Defiant was good. I grew to like the Defiant, but I didn't love it at first.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I can make my peace with some of the Voyager-era designs, but, you know, the Enterprise-era designs, and some of the ones in the movies, like the first contact ships I never really took to... (laughs) So it kind of feels like repeating myself when I say that, that the new starships that they designed for this battle And there were, what, like 15 of them? I lost count. Yeah, I felt
2: like every ship was a whole new design.
0: Oh, yeah, they were all different designs, which is something else that you never had in a Star Trek battle before because it was always, you know, the
2: same model copied a bunch of times. I I don't know. Maybe it's just because that's what I'm used to, but I almost feel like that would be, you know... If you're going to have the idea that they have starship classes, then you would have many starships of the same design, not like a thousand different designs, you know? And maybe a constitution in there? That wouldn't have been a bad idea to just throw in a constitution or two, and also to have, like, you know, two or three other ships of the same design as the Shenzhou, and maybe a ship of the design of the Discovery? Or maybe even just have the Discovery involved in that battle and introduce it that way? Well, they're not gonna duplicate the hero ships.
0: Just in terms of, like, you want the design of the hero ship to be instantly identifiable to the viewer... So, in a space battle like that, they're not going to duplicate the Shenzhou, and they're not going to have, like, another ship of the same design as the Discovery, because when you see the Discovery, it needs to be a big deal, because this is going
2: to be the ship that we're going to be on for the rest of the season, I think. I understand that argument, but at the same time, it doesn't really make sense. You know? Why would you have five Excelsior-class ships and a bunch of Miranda-class ships but only one galaxy class. It doesn't make sense. In-universe, it doesn't, really. that's, That's all... Of course, the way they got around it in this show was to never have two of the same ship.
0: Yeah. Okay. Again, before we talk about the rest of the season, while we're still on specifically these first two episodes, we should probably
2: talk about Ambassador Sarek. I was not a fan of the guy playing Sarek. I think his portrayal was okay, but it just didn't feel anything like Sarek to me. I agree. I think it's a fine enough character to have,
0: and I understand why they made it Sarek, but it didn't necessarily feel like Sarek.
2: No, it would have worked better to me if it had just been another Vulcan, because then maybe I just wouldn't be judging it as harshly. And then I could just say whether the guy was good or bad at playing a Vulcan, rather than judging him against Mark Leonard. And on the one hand, I think maybe I'm unfair judging him against Mark Leonard, but on the other hand, I've seen not William Shatner play Captain Kirk and was fine with it, and I've seen not Leonard Nimoy play Spock and I was fine with it. And you saw not Mark Leonard play Sarek. <laughs> what, for like two seconds in Star Trek V? No, for, in, for, in Star Trek Eleven. Oh Yeah. That was almost a different Sarek.
0: It was, it was a very different Sarek, like a lot of the characters are very different in that universe. And that's, an, that's another, again, not trying to go into a picky canon thing, but in terms of character dynamics, a lot of the sort of characterization of Sarek is known. We only got him a few times... He was just in the one episode of the TV show and a few movies and, again, in Next Gen. But each time he appears is almost like a character milestone for him. In terms of his relationship with Spock in his first several appearances. In terms of his relationship with humanity and emotionality. And a lot of that kind of has to be
2: tweaked... To have him be Michael Burnham's adopted father. A, if he has an adopted human ward, it really puts a whole new spin on his treatment of Spock. Yeah. And not in a good way the way that you can incorporate the existence of Cybok into the story and, like, it suddenly spontaneously provides a lot of really interesting explanations for how he treats Spock. The existence of Michael Burnham as his adopted child, or his ward, or whatever you want to call it, it raises a lot of questions about his treatment of Spock, and exactly how that worked and where some of his behavior came from. I don't want to make definitive pronouncements about it after two episodes, but it does feel very strange. It feels kind of tacked on. Like, why did it have to be Sarek? I mean, even if you want to have a character of a human raised by Vulcans, which, frankly, I didn't think they handled very well. But if you want to have a character of a human raised by Vulcans, why did it have to be Sarek? And why did you have to bring this actor in and have, try to have him play Sarek rather than just play a Vulcan? He would have been okay as, like, generic Vulcan, but I didn't get any of the kind of gravitas I expect from Sarek. Even Ben Cross in the reboot, who was very, very different from Mark Leonard's portrayal of Sarek, but he had that kind of gravitas you expect from Serik. He was able to handle that aspect of it. James Frayne in Discovery, I just didn't get that from him. Like I said, it would have been okay for generic random Vulcan we've never heard of before, but I I didn't think it was good enough for Serik. I definitely think you, you
0: hit it in terms of the gravitas. And I hope if he's more of a regular character that that develops a little. If there's going to be more with Sarek, which I'm pretty sure that there is because it's a huge part of Burnham's backstory and her kind of centeredness, I would like to see uh, how Amanda fits into this whole situation. Because yeah, Good point. Good point. I mean, I think she would have been pushing to take care of this child. I mean, that's an aspect of the whole Cybok thing, too. I just wonder about Amanda's perspective on all this. Does
2: Amanda agree that the way to treat a child with emotional trauma is to teach them to suppress all emotion? Right. And also, what's with Giorgio in the flashback scenes where she's, like, shaking her head in dismay that this human has been taught the Vulcan ways and you need to come back among your own people, like... That rubbed me way the wrong way. Ooh, fair.
0: That's why, when you think of what we might get in the rest of the season, that's one reason why I think we are not yet done with Captain Giorgio and the Shenzhou and that whole situation. Because I think there's gotta be more of Burnham's backstory coming, more of the transition between bowl-cut Vulcan-Burnham- ...and current
2: version of that character. Okay, here's my hair-brained, wild-eyed idea. They show in the preview for, like, coming up this season... ...where we actually get snippets of the Discovery and the captain of the Discovery... ...on this show called Discovery, where we haven't seen the Discovery yet after two episodes. They intimate that there's, like, weird shit going on on the Discovery. And the captain has this, like, crazy idea that he needs the convict Michael Burnham for... And they show, like, scenes of weird shit going on, like, like anti-gravity or probability manipulation or something going on there. And it's kind of wacky, and the characters are like, whoa, what the fuck is that? And the captain has nefarious plans, and he's bringing in the convict to advance them somehow. What are the chances that somehow at the end of all this, the war with the Klingons gets retconned by weird, freaky science on the Discovery? Oh... And that at the end of the season, Giorgio isn't dead anymore. Oh, goodness. That is not where I thought you were going. That was the thought that occurred to me watching that preview for what's going on in the rest of the season. I don't think they're going to retcon the Klingon war. You don't think there's going to be some sort of time travel element or rewriting history element to whatever weird science experiment is going on on the Discovery?
0: I don't know what the weird science element of it is going to amount to. One of the characters was billed as an astromycologist, which is the study of space mushrooms. So I don't know how the mycology is going to
2: impact on things mushrooms they're all going to do a little too much LDS and just daydream that Giorgio's back and they're not at war with the Klingons
0: <laughs> well if they beamed the LDS over to that Klingon sarcophagus ship that might help I don't think they need any more you know just mellow them out a little right
2: okay so where did you think I was going then well I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure I'm not good at hair-brained theories <laughs> Well, you just said, wow, I didn't think that was where you were going. Where did you think I was going? Okay. At the end of the season, they have to
0: end the war. Because season two isn't going to be about the Klingon War. No? No. I don't know what it's going to be about, but okay. Why wouldn't they extend the war over multiple seasons? I believe the producers have said that, you know, it's a season arc and it's going to wrap up. But I I really think... (laughs) I don't think that Michelle Yeoh is going to come back as an active alive. <laughs> it's so weird. Star
2: Trek would do that in one episode. I don't think they'll do that for an entire season arc. Well, this is a whole new world of television which can be the next topic we talk about. How do you mean? This is sort of the new model of how they make television, where they make a whole series season at a time. And it's not like a season of television was in the 90s. It's like a 10-part episode.
0: Yeah, a lot of which they've made already, so they can't exactly... they, They can't exactly get feedback on, like... The Klingons always
2: speaking Klingon and then kind of make adjustments later. I think they've made a lot of the show already. But, I mean, it's not like they get, like, a season commitment say, Okay, we want 25 episodes. Go make 25 episodes. Mm-hmm. They, like, put together a proposal of, like, we're going to make... How long is this season? 10 episodes or 13 episodes? or? Uh, it's going to be 15 total. It was this two-part pilot and then 13 more episodes. Okay, so they put together the proposal for 15 episodes. Like, we have a story to tell, and we're going to tell it in 15 episodes. But when you structure your season that way, you don't put in episodes like Captain's Holiday. You don't put in episodes like In the Cards or Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. When you structure your season that way, you don't put in episodes like Duet or The Inner Light or anything like that. When you just have to fill X number of episodes and you're trying to come up with ideas, well, we need two more episodes, what are we going to do? That's how you come up with stuff like that. When you're telling one story over the course of a number of episodes, you don't have those sorts of extraneous things. And that's both a good and a bad thing. It's more focused, everything you do has a purpose, but on the other hand, you don't get, you know, you don't get in the cards, you don't get the inner light, you don't get duet, you you don't get take me out to the hollow suite. you don't get episodes like that when you have your entire thing pre-planned. That's one of the
0: things that I was uh, talking about with my boyfriend after we watched the show, because the only other Star Trek show he's seen in its entirety is DS9, and he loved it, and he watched Discovery with us and said, well, that's not much like DS9. (laughs) One of the things that I absolutely love about Star Trek is just what you were saying, in, in, in terms of having to fill that episode commitment and just doing things that are weird. Like, we have our very serious characters in our various serious spaceship and our very serious overarching issues that they're examining in any given episode, but this week they all play baseball for a while. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about Star Trek is that it has that combination. It has that variability. It has the ability to be a little slow and a little ponderous and a little bit of an overt metaphor. And it has the ability to just be weird sometimes. And and I really hope that this show develops the kind of family mentality ...that they do with the crews on a lot of the other shows... ...and the ability to just do weird shit sometimes.
2: Well, there's pros and cons to each approach. But this is a different way than any other Star Trek show has been planned out before. Yeah. You know, there's there there are definitely pros to being able to tell larger stories... ...being able to go into more detail... ...being able to paint your picture over two or three or four or five or six episodes... Being able to do your prologue over two hours of television rather than five minutes at the beginning of the pilot. There's advantages to that, but the disadvantage is that you don't have these sort of weird meanderings that can wind up being irrelevant, but sometimes wind up being really great. You know, when you have a focused 15-episode story, you're not going to just sort of have the drumhead off on the side here, you know? You're not going to just sort of have who watches the Watchers off on the side here. You you don't need the drumhead. She's guilty. (laughs) Like, she did it. Well, that's something else. They seem to be implying in the flash forward, in the preview of what's in the rest of the season, they seem to be implying that, like, she's somehow to blame for being at war with the Klingons. When really, she had the only idea that might possibly have prevented the war. Right, but if everyone else, or most everyone else
0: in the Federation, is in kind of a naive mindset that you were talking about before, then they might not be so receptive to her case for, we had to attack, I was doing what I needed to do to get us to attack, and would concentrate a little more on... You killed one of their warriors, and this entire war is about them avenging their warrior. That's one dynamic that I'd like to see them do a little more with than they've done in Star Trek in the past. Like, we've talked a lot about Voyager not living up to basically any part of its premise, uh, but I saw someone online making the comparison to Tom Paris coming out of prison to serve on the starship and the way that, by the end of the pilot, they were just treating him like another officer. They talked about discipline issues a few times, but it really wasn't as big a deal as you might think it would be to have an ex-con among all the perfect Starfleeters. So, that's a dynamic that I think they can do a lot with
2: in this show. Well, it was only once in a blue moon they even had any issues with the Maquis terrorists, Just spontaneously joining the crew of Starfleeters.
0: Yeah, basically. I mean, Major Kira had more issues with being a former terrorist, and she was on her home turf. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's definitely one dynamic that they can make a lot out of. And, again, whatever is happening with the weird science, and whatever is happening with Captain Lorca's esoteric planning, uh, there's, there's a lot. There's still a lot to
2: introduce. I mean... It's because we haven't gotten onto the ship that the show is named for yet. Right, well, we'll get there. Um, (laughs) In theory. I don't know, man, we saw Deep Space Nine pretty early on Deep Space Nine. We saw the Starship Voyager pretty early on Voyager. Yeah, but that was
0: a different time. A time that they will deprive us of. Anyway, (sighs) I feel like maybe we've bagged on the show a little too much just because that's... What we do. <laughs> well, to an extent, that's what we do, and to an extent, it's easier to talk about that. But really,
2: like I said at the beginning of the show, I really think it has a lot of potential. I think so far, almost all it has is potential. Because like I said, we've only seen the prologue. We haven't even seen chapter one. Uh, that's 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 true. That That is true, but... Um... I mean, quite literally, I mean, I I feel like I've said this several times and maybe I'm harping on the the same point over and over again. Maybe this is my dreadfully dull of this episode, but the show is called Star Trek Discovery and we literally haven't seen the starship Discovery yet. So literally the story hasn't begun. (laughs) Whatever story is going to be happening is going to be taking place on a ship that we have not seen yet. I mean, we've talked about a lot of irrelevancies, we've talked about the makeup and the costumes and the, you know, ship designs and whatever, but it's hard to judge a story when we haven't even seen Chapter 1 yet. It's also sort of a consequence of the new way of doing television, where this is a story. It's not like at the end of the DS9 pilot you say, well, okay, they can tell a lot of interesting stories given the premise that they've just set up. We know they're telling a story, and we haven't seen the beginning of it yet. Well, I'm still pretty optimistic to see it. I think they've set up some interesting things. How are you feeling? Are you optimistic about the show? I don't know if I'd say optimistic. I'm open to it. I'm looking forward to it. There wasn't anything bad about anything they've shown so far. It's just, I can't give it a great yet. I have to give it an incomplete. You know? So, so, I can't really say, oh, this is great, and what's coming up next looks really interesting. I... I I need to see chapter one before I can make any kind of judgment about this. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit about the score, because I know that's something that I was thinking about a lot uh, leading up to the premiere of the show, especially after they posted a video of the composer, Jeff Russo, actually recording the main title for the program, which was probably the most notable piece of music in these first two episodes. I'm not sure that I caught much of the score otherwise. That might just have been because yeah, it's nothing. the first time watching it and you're you're concentrating on a lot of things at once. But it didn't really kind of stand out other than that. So uh, what did you think of the music insofar as you... Uh, kind of took it in, in these
2: episodes. The music was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. It was it was pre- It was was good, for what it is. I'm looking forward to hearing more of it, and I'm looking forward to the soundtrack they'll probably released at the end of the series. Which they do now for a whole bunch of television shows, which they didn't do for other Star Trek series, so that's an improvement. I did notice they used the main theme, or variations on the main theme, several times, and I like that. That was always sort of a bugaboo in the Rick Berman-produced era of Star Trek television, that he didn't want them reusing any themes, he he didn't want anything recognizable in the music, and so I liked that they brought variations of the theme in several times with several different variations. Again, I didn't notice any other themes, just on first blush, that was the only theme I was familiar enough with to pick out when they used it. But yeah, I liked it so far. The, the, the main theme I think is interesting, because the beginning sounds a lot like the animated series theme to me. And then the main body of it sort of reminds me a lot of Jedi Steps from Star Wars The Force Awakens. So, that's sort of interesting. I mean, it hits you right away with the Alexander Courage fanfare.
0: Yeah. Um, They have that at the beginning and the end. They have that at the beginning and the end of the main titles. And the one bit of score from the body of the episode that I can really... ...that really stood out was when they brought in the, uh, the Courage fanfare again... ...when the Shenju kind of emerged from the clouds at the beginning on the desert planet... Hmm. ...to really kind of hammer that home right at the beginning... ...that this is Star Trek, this is the world that you're in... ...you know, really kind of using that musical language to hammer that home. The main body of the opening titles... I mean, ever since you told me you thought it sounded like the Jedi Steps, that's all I can hear when I hear it anymore.
2: So thanks. (laughs) Um, I think it's really funny because ever since you told me that I've ruined it for you, that now you can't hear it without thinking of the Jedi Steps, now I can't hear it without thinking about how I've ruined it for you. (laughs)
0: Like the main melodic portion of it. Sounds quite a bit like the Jedi Steps. Before that, between the Alexander Courage fanfare and the main melody that sounds like the Jedi Steps, there's a section that sounds quite a bit like uh, the music for the show Fringe. Really? Which uh, was done by uh, Michael Giacchino's associates. Uh, Chris Tilton did the last several seasons, and a few of uh, Giacchino and his associates did season one but the string ostinato leading into the main portion of the melody sounded quite a lot like a couple of pieces from Fringe. So, even in those terms, it's kind of in the musical lexicon of, once again, the J.J. Abrams aesthetic.
2: Well, we keep sort of going back to the idea that television production has changed since the mid-90s. In that it's a lot more cinematic. Yeah, and and the score work for television series is a lot different now. Mm. Which is, you know, one of the reasons why so many series have soundtrack CD releases now that, you know, you never would have dreamed of that in the mid-90s. But they put a lot more work into scoring shows now. I mean, in the 90s when they were doing, you know, bland wallpaper as the music to Rick Berman produced Star Trek... How many other shows even had a full original score every week? Yeah, for, for
0: a while. I mean, Star Trek was the one that kept doing that for a long time. And it's easy to bag on the Berman era wallpaper, but I own quite a few discs of that music now. <laughs>
2: <Because> <laughs> it had its moments. There were some highlights in there. Yes. I'm not saying it was all dreck. I'm just saying that he wanted it to be all dreck. Fair, fair.
0: <laughs> the composer, Jeff Russo, is someone... ...that I wasn't very familiar with before he was announced for this show. Most people who keep up on television uh, would know him from uh, the Fargo TV series and Legion. I listened to the four combined albums put out for those shows before Discovery premiered... ...and there was a highlight here and there. He didn't really leap out as, like, A Composer to Watch, in all capitals. But, again,
2: there's potential, and I'm optimistic. It's hard for me to judge television scores because I'm so used to film scores. Yeah, fair. And even among film scores, I generally bag on, like, regular one-of-the-mill dramatic scores that don't have, like, a giant action set piece to score, you know? Mm. All my judgments of scores are comparing it to, like, Star Wars and Titanic and Star Trek scores and Superman and big things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, even trying to judge the score of, like, you know, a regular drama, like what gets nominated for the Oscars, it's not really my wheelhouse. And on television, it's just so... A, your turnaround time is so much less than it is on a film. B, there's just so much more material. You're scoring 15 hours of material, not two. So, television, by its nature, sort of becomes more rote and repetitive than a film will be. Because it's episodic and it's so much longer than any individual film. And so I feel like judging television scores against my knowledge and experience of listening to movie scores is sort of... It's an unfair comparison to make, you know? It's like judging the effects on a TV show on a TV budget versus judging the effects of a major motion picture budget. Well, meanwhile, one
0: of the main comments I've seen about Discovery is that, you know, the effects and the makeup and the cinematography and everything is so cinematic, is the word that that a lot of people have used for it. it. It is very much upscale. We'll see how that goes for an extended TV season, as opposed to the pilot episodes,
2: but... Well, CBS is obviously putting some money in this because this is sort of, you know, this was conceived as the first original show on their Netflix competitor.
0: Yeah, I bear no grudge toward the Good Wife spinoff series, but they're getting a lot of subscriptions for this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they're gonna...
2: They're gonna want to attract people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, dear listeners... Thank you for being with us for this look at the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, We will not be doing this episodic uh, week by week because it is going to be, you know, a season arc, a whole unified story, but here is what we're gonna do. They are splitting the season for Discovery, so the first run of episodes is going to run through the 5th of November. So we are gonna be back after that to talk about the first 8 episodes of Discovery and then they're going to come back with the last 7 starting in January 2018 and we will be back after the season ends to talk about it again. In the meantime, we're going to try to start doing podcasts again. <laughs> Scott, what do you th- how do you feel being back in the
2: podcast mind palace? We keep having ideas of episodes we should do and then not doing them.
0: Yeah, because it would require, like, effort. But I'm glad that we were able to do this one. Thank you very much to everyone who asked if we would. (laughs) There were a few. (laughs) This is our wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. So, thank you very much for listening. Scott, thank you for all that you do. And we will see you next time.
2: Other than, like, Saru... Did you just mute that? <laughs> uh, no, I forgot. You
0: literally said, let me mute that. And then what I did was plug it in. <laughs>